Okay, good evening everyone and welcome to the second class of this uh, of its kind. We are going to be exploring another selection from the Rebbe's Fabrenian. Um, as we spoke last time, the Fabrenian was the primary format through which the Rebbe would teach Torah to the world. And obviously it started off to a much smaller crowd I gathered gathered at 770 Eastern Parkway. And um, over the years, the in-person crowd grew. Over the years, uh, on weekdays, they started to broadcast these Fabrenians live on radio. And uh, in 1980 or 1981, around that time, they started to have certain select Fabrenians that were broadcast live on cable television. Um, so we are going to take a one of these Fabrengans, and uh, it, it's a theme that is connected to this week's Parsha. So before we get into the Fabrengan itself, which uh, I hope all of you received the handout uh, in your email and you're able to download it, um, I'd like to discuss uh, a certain theme of this week's Parsha, which is going to segue into this uh, Fabrengan. This week we learn about our forefather Abraham, the first Jew, the first Jew. Avraham Avinu. Uh, what was unique about Avraham was the fact that although he was born to a heathen father, a father who served idols and made a business out of selling idols, uh, that was his industry. Although he had no one to learn from, Avraham, on his own as a very young child, discovered that there is a creator. He came to the conclusion that there is a God and that the whole idea of idol worship is, uh, is, is silly. And, um, and he started to understand and appreciate the truth. But he did not keep this truth to himself. In fact, he did everything that he could to spread that knowledge to as many people as possible. To the point that once when he was in charge of his father's store, he, um, everyone that came in to purchase uh, an idol, he dissuaded them from doing so. He persuaded them to give up idolatry and to start uh, serving the one God. And at one point, he basically destroyed all of, the, all of the, the idols in the store. He was arrested. He was in prison for 10 years. And King Nimrod threw him into a fiery furnace um, as a result of his obstinacy and his chutzpah, the fact that he would not accept idolatry. Um, and Avram continued throughout his lifetime to constantly... Uh, spread awareness of monotheism. And in this week's parasha, it opens up when he's 75 years old and God tells him to move away from Chara, move away from his parents' home and to go to a land. And he leads him to the land of Israel, which was then known as the land of Canaan. God promises Avram that he will have children, he will have descendants who will one day inherit the land. At the very end of the parasha, Avram is 99 years old and God communicates to Avram the mitzvah of the bris milah, the mitzvah of circumcision. And God tells Avram, you know, you've done so much. And uh, essentially, what could be expected more of you? But if you want to be perfect, I want you to do the mitzvah of circumcision. With this, you are going to enter into an eternal covenant with me. And he tells him, although you're 99 years old and you're doing the bris now, but from now on, your children will do the bris when they are eight days old. The father or someone should 
should should uh, should do the circumcision on the child, and with this, the child is inducted into the covenant with God Almighty. Now, the mitzvah of bris milah, the mitzvah of circumcision, not only is it a mitzvah that is done early on in a child's life, when they're eight days old, but it's also a foundational mitzvah for all of Judaism. Because the truth of the matter is that this was the first mitzvah that God gave to Avram. Our sages tell us that Avram, essentially Adam HaRishon, the first man, already knew the knowledge of Torah. Somehow, some way, there was this communication from God to the people. They had Torah knowledge. One of the proofs for that is uh, in last week's parsha when we study the, the story of Noah and the great flood. So God tells Noah to build this ark because he's destroying the entire world and only he and his children will survive and a representation of all animal life should join him on the ark. God tells him, from the animals that are tahor, from the pure animals, you should take seven pairs. From the impure animals, you should only take one pair, male and female, and that's it. What does pure animals and impure animals mean? It's basically talking about uh, those animals that are kosher for consumption are considered the pure animals, and those that are not kosher for consumption are the impure animals. So goats, sheep, cows, uh, deer, these are all animals that are kosher for consumption. And Noah had to take seven pairs of those animals. A horse, a, uh, you know, a, an elephant, monkeys, these are all animals that are not kosher for consumption. So Noah had to only take one pair, male and female. Well, how would Noah know what is considered a pure animal and what is considered an impure animal if not for the fact that he had Torah knowledge? So it's an accepted fact in Jewish tradition that Torah knowledge was present in humanity all the way back to the first man to Adam. And certainly Avram also had Torah knowledge. After he discovered monotheism, he went off to study in the academy of Noah's son, Shem, and his great-grandson, Aver, which was known as the, the, the Torah Academy of the time where they studied Torah, Avram knew Torah, and Avram kept all the mitzvot. In fact, we have an indication in this week's parasha that Avram kept Passover, that he ate matzah on Passover. I'm not going to get into the details of that. In next week's parasha, we, learn, we have indications that Avram was, kept kosher, that he separated between milk and meat. So Avram kept the mitzvot. However, the fundamental difference between his mitzvot and the mitzvot that we do today after Mount Sinai is that before Mount Sinai, before the Jews stood at Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments and had that direct communication with God, none of the mitzvot were obligational. None of the mitzvot were a command from God to the people. Avram did mitzvot on his own accord. He kept kosher because he wanted to keep kosher. He kept Shabbat, he kept Passover, he kept all of these mitzvot because he wanted to. Bris, circumcision, was the first and only mitzvah that Avram was given as a command from God to Avram. So this was essentially the first mitzvah a Jew was ever given, the mitzvah of bris, the mitzvah of a circumcision. And while, yes, the actual mitzvah is only possible for males, it's only an obligation on males, but the message, the, the ideas that, that come from the mitzvah of bris are foundational for all Jews, men and women alike.
So there are two interesting things that come out from this mitzvah of bris. Number one, and the obvious one is, that the very first mitzvah that a child does in his lifetime is associated with pain. Yes, the fact is that when it comes to a bris, even though it's a very happy occasion, a joyous occasion, and we throw a party and everyone is there, and, and you know, as, as soon as the moyel finishes what he has to do, everyone you know, screams mazel tov, but the baby is not uh, singing and dancing, the baby is crying. In fact, if the baby doesn't cry, you, you'll wonder if there's something wrong with the baby. So a bris is a painful thing. And it's not just painful for an eight-day-old child. It's painful for a, for, for a man at any stage in life. The bris is a very painful type of mitzvah. So why would the first mitzvah, the foundational mitzvah of Judaism, be associated with pain? Then there's another interesting question um, from the mitzvah of bris. And I'd like to bring your attention to page 11 of the handout, the, the sources. And let's read source one together. This is a quote from the Medrash. Now, I'd just like to point out, just to give you some background to, uh, to these types of conversations. Throughout Medrash and throughout Talmud, by the way, the Medrash and the Talmud were, were basically authored by the same, by the same authors. Okay? It's just a little bit of a different genre of teachings, but essentially it comes from the same Talmudic sages. And throughout these books, you find very often conversations between non-Jewish philosophers and the Jewish sages. In fact, one of the most famous philosophers that engaged the Jewish sages in philosophical discussion was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, in addition to being a great warrior, he was also a deep philosopher and a lot of very deep questions. And uh, when he conquered the land of Israel, or, you know, it was, it was during the time period, I believe, the beginning of the Second Temple era. So this is after the Purim story, before the Hanukkah story sandwiched in between these two uh, historical events, you have Alexander the Great who comes into the land of Israel and he is enamored by the wisdom of the sages. And throughout the Talmud, you have these conversations, fascinating stories of, of conversations between Alexander the Great and the sages. And this continued throughout perhaps, I would say about seven, 800 years uh, as Talmudic scholarship flourished in the land of Israel and later on in Babylon. Philosophy flourished then from the Greeks, the Romans, and they had constant um, discussion between each other. So here is one such discussion. Source number one. A philosopher asked Rabbi Hosea, he said to him, if God so loves circumcision, why did he not give it to Adam? Essentially, what his question is like this. Apparently, from the way God speaks to Avram about the circumcision, he says, until you'll have the circumcision, you're not perfect. Apparently, this is considered a blemish in the body that Avraham needs to perfect, that he needs to fix. So the philosopher asked a simple question. He said, if this is a blemish in the human body, why, was it, why is this mitzvah, why was it not given as an obligation to all human beings? Why was it not given to Adam, the first man, that he should fix up this blemish? Or even deeper, his question really is, if God wants a person to be circumcised, why did he not create him circumcised? Why does God create the person imperfect? Why didn't he just create him circumcised? Why didn't he just create all of us circumcised? And then you don't have to go through the pain of circumcision. He said to him, now, 
this, this question is actually so deep. It's basically what, what's being insinuated here is, if you believe that God is the creator of the world and that God is perfect, apparently his creation is not perfect, which, uh, which is a reflection of God's imperfection. So you can really get tied up in knots when you deal with this philosophically. So Rabbi Yeshe answered him like this. He said to him, anything created in the first six days, obviously talking about the six days of creation, Sunday through Friday, before Shabbos, anything created in the first six days needs further actions. For example, mustard seeds need sweetening, peas need sweetening, wheat needs grinding, even humans need fixing. God created this world that there's no such thing as an apple pie growing on a tree. You want an apple pie? You got to take that apple. You got to do something with it. I don't even know what you do. How do you make apple pie? That I leave to uh, the professionals. Um, the professionals next door in the kitchen, they take care of that and they do a wonderful job. But somehow they take these apples, which are sweet already, but they turn it into apple pie. I want to have bread. Bread doesn't grow from the ground. These hard little kernels of wheat, they come out. And somehow from that wheat, you know, we make flour, bake it, and it takes some time to have bread. So Rabbi Yeshe is saying this like this. You think that the fact that a person is not circumcised, that's an imperfection. That's not a reflection of God's imperfection. The entire world was created in this way. God created the world by definition as a place that needs perfecting. Does that mean that this world is imperfect? No. That means that God created it imperfectly for a reason. Now, what could that reason be? Why would God want us to have to go and take beans and cook them in order to eat them? Why couldn't he just do beans in a way that you could just eat them and that's it? So let's go into uh, the Fabrangan. If you go to page 8 from the from the handout. Now, just to give you some background about this Fabrangan, this is an excerpt from a gathering that was held as a celebration of the Rebbe's 70th birthday. The Rebbe's birthday is four days before Pesach, the 11th day of Nisan. In 1972, the Rebbe was turning 70. Now, there are some people here on this, uh, on this Zoom meeting that probably have already uh, reached that milestone. And you can probably... Uh, admit that once you hit 70, sometimes the thought comes into your mind, it's probably time to slow down. Some people entertain the idea of retiring, of doing less, of spending more time with the family instead of being involved in work or anything like that. And uh, there were those that uh, communicated to the Rebbe in one way or another that perhaps his 70th birthday might be a good time to think about slowing down just a bit. The Rebbe worked, uh, his workday schedule was mind-boggling, hours upon hours. And what was more amazing was that the Rebbe never took a day of vacation. And this is, this is meant literally from the time that the Rebbe became the leader of the Chabad Lubavitch movement and took responsibility for the Jewish world. Uh, there are people that can testify that the Rebbe every single day was in the office. Even after the Rebbe suffered a heart attack in 1977 uh, during the holidays, the Rebbe he stayed in his office. His office became uh, his, his hospital room. That's where he recovered. And why was he there? Because that was a place where he was able to continue his work of, of uh, 
you know, whatever a Rebbe does, the many different things that he does uh, from his office, he answered all of his mail. J just to give you an, a, just a, a feeling of what's going on over here. 1977, the Rebbe was 75 years old. The Rebbe suffered a massive heart attack. The Rebbe was in his room and, you know, just that same week that he suffered the heart attack, the Rebbe asked the secretary to bring in his mail. The Rebbe's mail, the only other person in the United States who received as much mail as the Rebbe was the White House. Okay, so you're talking about hundreds of letters coming into the Rebbe's office every single day. The Rebbe asked the secretary to bring Abigail, in his mail. Shushan. So uh, he, he, uh, the secretary suggested to the Rebbe, uh, perhaps we should give it a break. You know, maybe in two, three weeks, the Rebbe will get back to his mail. So the Rebbe smiled and said like this, look, you're not going to process the mail without me. The rule was that the Rebbe opened up all of his envelopes. All of the mail that came to the Rebbe was opened up by the, by the Rebbe. So the Rebbe said, let's say there's 200 letters to open up today. How many letters will there be tomorrow? 400. Every week is going to be about 1,000 letters. If we're going to take a break for four weeks, that means that in four weeks we're going to have to open 4,000 letters, right? That's not very smart. Bring in the letters. So here you have the Rebbe barely days after suffering a massive heart attack answering his mail. That two days after the Rebbe suffered the heart attack, yeah, two days later, the Rebbe uh, addressed the Hasidim that were there via, it was a microphone, so they were able to hear downstairs in the, in the shul. The Rebbe spoke to them for 20 minutes. The doctors wanted the Rebbe to speak for only five minutes. The Rebbe spoke for 20 minutes. The point I'm trying to make is that the Rebbe's day was very, very full, and it was every single day was nonstop. So in 1972, when the Rebbe turned 70, people were suggesting that the Rebbe should take a break. So at this Fabrengen, which was about five or six hours of nonstop Torah teachings, the Rebbe took that whole suggestion and basically trashed it. Without, I don't have a better word of saying it. The Rebbe trashed it, but in a very gentle and fine manner. And the Rebbe spoke about this idea, the concept that a person was created to work and to work hard. But the Rebbe, in, in the classic fashion of the Rebbe, the Rebbe goes and, and brings all of these sources from the Torah that indicate that the whole purpose, the whole reason why we're here is in order to perfect the world. And the reason why we have to work hard to do so is not because God is imperfect or the world is imperfect or that we are imperfect, but because God is perfect and God wants us to be perfect as well, he gives us the opportunity to become his partner in creation. Now, after the Rebbe explained this idea, at one point during the Fabrengen, the Rebbe announced that he wants a birthday gift. His birthday gift is that the Chabad movement should create 70 new institutions over the next year. Now, today, Chabad could create 70 new institutions in a month. But then, 1972, Chabad was not even close to the size that Chabad is today. And the Rebbe was pushing so hard. And he said, you know, it was, it was actually a very, it was, it was a very uplifting type of Febringen. And the Rebbe said, I was waiting for everyone to get into a mode. There's this beautiful song that they were singing. The Rebbe said, okay, now that everyone's in the mode, now I'm going to give you my request. My birthday request is, we're going to have another 70 new institutions. And this came after this explanation that the Rebbe gives. So let's read inside. Number eight, uh, page number eight. There is a well-known question in the Medrash, which seems very relevant in our day. If Hashem, God, wants us to fulfill the instructions of the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, 
and to live a life of Torah and mitzvot, why does he place obstacles in our path? This is a fundamental question, very similar to the question of the philosopher about the bris. The question is, if God wants us to keep Torah and mitzvot, if this is a perfect world, if a perfect world means that everyone is behaving in accordance with the code of Jewish law, so why is it so hard? Why is it something that seems to be out of reach for so many people? Why is it that many times when I make the, the decision to live a Torah life, to do a mitzvah, to set aside time to learn Torah, all of a sudden there is a hundred different excellent reasons not to do so. This would seem to be contrary to the fact that God is in control, that God's Torah is true, that God's wishes are true. In other words, here reality collides with idealism. And this can become a very fundamental and really real, uh, real problem for us human beings. The rabbi continues, every Jew's true desire is to fulfill Hashem's will and to study Torah, fulfill mitzvot, and live his life according to the Shulchan Aruch. Maimonides writes that every Jew wants to fulfill all the mitzvot. So why is it that you see many Jews that don't do it? And in quote, but his evil inclination pressures him not to. In other words, we have a built-in excuse for why a Jew is not necessarily living up to his or her potential. Why a Jew may not be observing all 630 mitzvot in the most perfect way. Why? Because he has an evil inclination. And that evil inclination is very influential. And that's why we're failing. Why indeed does Hashem place numerous obstacles before the Jew and force him to toil with all his might, sometimes to the point of self-sacrifice? Fair question. This question has already been asked in the Medrash regarding the very first mitzvah that was given to the Jewish people. The mitzvah of Brit Milah. A philosopher asked, if Hashem so loves circumcision, why did he not give it to Adam? Meaning, why wasn't he created circumcised? The essential question, why was man created imperfect? Which leads into the same question of, why was this world created in a way that living the perfect lifestyle is so difficult? The philosopher was answered, anything created in the first six days needs further actions. For example, mustard seeds need sweetening, even humans need fixing. The world was created from the outset as a place where a Jew can enter into a partnership with Hashem. This is the essential answer, but now we have to understand this answer. The reason why the world was created imperfect was in order that we should perfect it, and by doing so, we become partners with the Creator. Let's go to page number nine. This is true for every individual. Whenever you encounter a difficulty, the evil inclination might come and argue, you always profess your belief that Hashem is in complete control over everything. But this seems to be a contradiction. If he wants you to fulfill this mitzvah, why would he put obstacles in your path? A Jew needs to remember the answer. Hashem who is ultimate good, isn't trying to give you a hard time for no reason. To the contrary, 
because we are so dear in the eyes of Hashem, He wants us to realize our fullest potential. And because Torah and mitzvahs are so precious, He wants to give us the opportunity to truly earn the mitzvah instead of giving it to us for free. What's the problem with getting something free? By the way, anything that's really good is not really free. There was a time in our lives that we thought that Facebook was free. Facebook is amazing. It's an unbelievable tool. It's an unbelievable service. You can connect with so many people and all of that. But what, what have we learned in the past few years? We've been paying for Facebook. Facebook has been taking our data and using it. Now, personally, I'm not someone that gets really upset about it. Like, whatever, okay. You know, it's a small price to pay, for me at least, small price to pay for the unbelievable service that we get. But the fact of the matter is, it's not really free. And like this, everything, even your email, whatever it is, it's not really free. You're always going to be paying a price. Something that comes truly free you never have a good feeling about it. In fact, the Zohar tells us something very, um, very dramatic about things that come free. Let's go to source number two. It's actually, uh, it might blow your mind, this whole idea here. Source number two on page 11. In the books of sorcery, yes, there really is such a thing, sorcery. And there are books of sorcery that are real stuff. In the books of sorcery, that Ashmedai, king of demons, taught King Solomon. That's another fascinating relationship that we learn about in the Talmud. King Solomon had a relationship with the king of the demons. Go understand that. But yes, he, had, he, he learned a lot from him, and he actually used him for, for different things. Uh, in fact, when King Solomon wanted to build the holy temple, he needed to get a hold of a very uh, rare type of worm. Uh, it was called a shamir. It was a type of worm that if you put it onto a stone, it was able to carve out the stone. Um, so the, 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 uh, the Talmud tells us that uh, this shamir bug or, or whatever it is, it's a small little bug, uh, was available to Moses when Moses uh, built the tabernacle. And he used that to carve out the names of the tribes on the stones of the breastplate and several other things that were needed in the, holy, in the, in the tabernacle because you couldn't use... Um, you couldn't use metal to chisel out um, different things that were needed. So it was made available to Moses, and then it disappeared. And King Solomon wanted to build a holy temple. He needed to get a hold of this uh, little bug. So he used the, the, the services of the demons who have powers that are beyond ours. And so he used out the services of Ashmedai. So Ashmedai had some very interesting conversations with King Solomon. He also taught him sorcery. So here it goes like this. In the books of sorcery that Ashmedai taught King Solomon, it is written, whoever wants to remove the impure spirit from himself must pay full price for the action in which he wishes to endeavor. And he should give whatever is requested of him, whether a little or a lot. For the spirit of impurity is always ready freely and for nothing and is saleable without payment because he entices them to dwell with him. He tempts them to make their habitation with him in many ways. The spirit of holiness is not this way, but only with full payment and great endeavor 
and by purifying himself and purifying his habitation with the desire of his heart and soul. So the Zohar, so it's a bit cryptic, but essentially the message that's coming across is the following. Whenever something is free, whenever something doesn't cost anything, you know that that is the, the bastion of impurity. Purity, holiness, divinity is only available in a, in, in a, in a situation where you need to pay, where you need to have investment, where you become a partner, where you're actively involved. In fact, uh, the Torah writes that, um, that when the Jewish people complained about the manna, they said, you know, we would have rather the food that we ate in Egypt. We remember the fish that we ate in, in Egypt that was free. So the sages tell us one second, the manna was this heavenly bread that fell from heaven. The Jewish people didn't have to pay for it, right? They didn't have to go and give money to God in order to it came, it came down from heaven. And here they're kvetching and they're saying, Oh, we have to eat the manna. We'd rather have the fish that we ate in Egypt. So what do you mean? In Egypt, they were slaves. But he calls Egypt free, and the manna apparently is not free. The so sages explain, here's what they were saying. Yes, the manna, we don't have to pay for it, but hey, living in the desert comes with a lot of obligations. They had received the Torah, they have 613 mitzvot. So when we were in Egypt, we didn't have any mitzvahs. We had no obligations. We were free, we were able to behave as we wished. So whatever we had then, it was an easy life, it was a good life. Let's continue in the Rebbe's words on page 9. The verse states, we ate in Egypt for free. And the Zohar explains that the trademark of impurity, the opposite of holiness, is that it comes without effort. Mitzvot, however, must cost money and effort. Hashem wants us to own the deed and feel personal responsibility for it. Therefore, the fact that there are obstacles in our path to good and holiness isn't just a coincidence. Without these obstacles, we would lack the full rewards and benefits that result from our work because we would be mere receivers. But when we invest our own effort, we become partners with, with Hashem, reaching the very same status of the commander of the mitzvah and the giver of the Torah, so to speak. So here's the deal. When God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, he didn't want us to have a whole group of people that are going to get a bunch of commands and they're going to listen. He wasn't looking for yes men. He wasn't looking for a bunch of robots to behave in a certain way. God wants us to own our Judaism. God wants us to be his partners in creation, to be his partners in the perfect world that will come as a result of our keeping the Torah, of our learning the Torah and keeping the mitzvot. If keeping Judaism would be a, in a breeze, then we wouldn't own it. We wouldn't feel that it's ours. We would have never had to make an effort. We would, grow, we would get bored of it, if you think about it. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting story told about Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bardicha. He was a Hasidic master, and he was known to be the ultimate um, defender of the Jewish people. And one time he complained to God. He said, you know, God, you're very upset that the Jewish people, they're not constantly involved 24-7 in learning your Torah and observing your mitzvot. He said, look, 
you know, the, the consequences of, of not learning Torah and doing mitzvot, you know, sometimes you hear from people that say, what's going to happen if I eat a non-kosher sandwich? Will lightning strike me? Like, you know, is, is something going, is something terrible, is, is the ceiling going to fall down on me? Essentially, what are they saying? I cannot see the results of my misbehavior. Why? Because the results of that are more spiritual. A person will only see it or, or perceive it in the next world. Now, the books are filled with these ideas. The books are filled with the whole concept of what comes as a result of, of, uh, of violating a mitzvah. So Rabbi Levi said like this, if you would take everything that's written in the books and put it out there on the street and take all of those distractions that are out there on the street and put them into the books, you can be sure that everyone would be learning Torah a whole day and doing mitzvahs a whole day. So it's not really fair. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak was, was, was bringing out a point. He was trying to defend the Jewish people. But God, the, uh, the world is not like this by, by mistake. It's not a fluke that, um, that out there in the world we have all the distractions that try to distract us from Torah observance. And that if you want to know how to do a mitzvah and be inspired to do a mitzvah, we have to seek it out. We have to find the right books. We have to find the right teachers. We have to find the right uh, environment. It takes effort to learn Torah. It takes effort to know how to do a mitzvah. A simple mitzvah like shaking the lulav and esri. You can't just go to Walmart and buy a lulav and esri. Especially here in El Paso, you have to order in advance. And it's a whole situation to get these four species in order to do the mitzvah. And by the way, it's from the easier mitzvahs. How difficult is it to take these four species and make a blessing and that's it? But you know what? In order to get these four species, boy, do you have to work. Someone will say, look, if you can't find an esrig, which is a specific citrus that grows in Israel and Italy and in certain places, just take a lemon. What's, what's the difference? says, yeah, but if you were able to take a lemon, you're able to just walk wherever it is and buy the lemon. Well, that's not the mitzvah. That's not the fun. In fact, perhaps the easiest one of these four species is the, is the willow, the willow branch. So I know of a story of a friend of mine who was going to a certain island to spend Sukkot there, to go and, and help the Jewish community there. It was, it was an island off of Spain. And um, he was going there for Sukkot. And he figured he'll bring with him the esrig and the, the lulav, the tall branch, and the hadassim, the myrtle branches. But willow branches shouldn't be too difficult to find anywhere. Anyway, he comes to this island two, three days before the holiday. And the first thing he did was he tried to find these willow branches. To his chagrin, it turns out that willows do not grow there. There's nowhere to find a willow on this island. And he doesn't know what to do. There was no way to bring it in. And he couldn't, he couldn't you know, figure out. Anyway, he's searching and searching. Finally, there was this um, botanical gardens, this like, you know, boutique type of garden that was there on the island. And in that thing, they were able to find one plant uh, of these willow branches. And he had to pay a lot of money to get two willow branches to put them into his set. And you can be sure that that was one of his most meaningful Sukkot uh, in taking those four species and, and shaking them. Sometimes doing a mitzvah, even an easy mitzvah, can be extremely, extremely difficult. Why? If that's the way God wants me to behave on Sukkot, why couldn't he just arrange that the four species should grow in my backyard? And the answer is so that you should own it. To show you, you should feel a connection to it. That you should feel that you invested 
in order to do that mitzvah. So now you'd think, okay, so does that mean that my entire life I have to toil, I have to work hard. Does that mean that Judaism has to be something that I literally have to do back-breaking labor in order to be able to do it? Does, does it really mean that in order for me to really own the mitzvah, I have to sweat and I have to break every bone in my body in order to become God's partner in creation? So the answer is no. When we talk about effort, it doesn't necessarily mean back-breaking effort. It could even mean just doing a little bit but that little bit must be there. Um, here the, here the, the Rebbe uh, invokes a very interesting story, uh, also from the Medrash. Let's read it in the, in the, in the source on page 12. Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa saw people in a city bringing sacrifices to Jerusalem. He said, everyone is bringing sacrifices to Jerusalem and I won't do so as well. Now, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa was extremely poor. He didn't have money to buy a cow or a sheep and bring that to Jerusalem. So he had to go and find something, you know, something that was free and, and open and, you know, just out there. He found the stone and chipped it, chiseled it and polished it and said, now I must transport it to Jerusalem. He wanted to present that stone to the Holy Temple. He decided to hire laborers. Suddenly five people appeared. Will you transport the stone to Jerusalem for me? He asked them. They said to him, pay us five sloim, a certain amount, and we will transport it to Jerusalem. He wanted to pay them, but having no money at the time, he sent them away. Hashem brought five angels with the appearance of men. Will you transport the stone to Jerusalem for me, he asked them. Pay us five sloim, and we will transport it to Jerusalem with the condition that you will help us out with a hand and a finger. Okay? He placed his hand and finger under the stone and found himself standing in Jerusalem. He was, he, was met, he was very far away from Jerusalem when he started off. But as soon as he put his hand under the stone, in a split second, he was standing in Jerusalem. In other words, the angels did their job. Right? How long does it take an angel to, to move a big stone from one place in Israel to Jerusalem? Well, here's your answer. Not even a split second. It's instantaneous. He wanted to pay them, but could no longer find them. He entered in the temple and inquired about the laborers. He said, did you see these guys? He, he started to give a description of them. And he was told, apparently, heavenly angels transported your stone to Jerusalem. All right, beautiful story, right? Seems like a story that you would just tell your kids when you're putting them to sleep. A story that you would share with a neighbor. Hey, you want to hear a tale from the Medrash? Listen to this tale. But if you think about this story, there are some very, very fundamental questions here. And here's how the Rebbe dissects and, and takes apart this story. Let, let's go on the Rebbe's words on page 9 on the bottom. However, this effort does not mean suffering and severe labor, God forbid. The Medrash tells the following story. Rabbi Kanina Mendoza saw people in a city bringing sacrifices to Jerusalem. He said, everyone is bringing sacrifices to Jerusalem, and I don't have a thing to bring up. He found the stone and chipped it, chiseled it, polished it, and said, now I must transport it to Jerusalem. And the continuation of the story, that uh, these five men who are really angels, they told him, look, you just put your finger, your hand under it, and we'll take care of it for you. And he found himself in Jerusalem. 
Let's go to the next paragraph. The story demands explanation. What did he accomplish by placing his hand on the stone? If he is personally obligated to bring a gift to the holy temple, how could the angels do the work for him? If they did the actual heavy lifting, he didn't fulfill his obligation. So apparently the fact that he has to put his hand under there, that means he has to be involved. But if he's the one that has to bring the stone, but they were the ones that did it. So in other words, basically like this. If he had to bring it, how could the angels do it? If the angels could do it, what was the point of him putting his hand there? The answer is, one must be personally involved in the effort. But even a single finger can be enough. Moreover, when a human being participates, when a human being participates with a single finger, second, when a human being participates with a single finger, it has greater value than five angels transporting the heavy stone all the way to Jerusalem. So essentially it's like this. We need to be involved. We need to invest our time, our energy. But it doesn't necessarily have to be impossible. It doesn't have to be something that, that, that consumes us, that, that, um, that wears us down. It doesn't have to be draining. But we need to have our investment. I'll give you an example. So when you're reading the Bible, you can come to the following mistake. So the, Bible, the Torah tells us like this, God created the world, he created Adam, and, and he brought Adam into the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is paradise, right? What happens in paradise? How do you envision paradise? Sitting back and relaxing, right? On the golf course, you have a lemonade next to you. Then Adam and the Chava, they, they sinned. And after Shabbat, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And after they sinned, God told Adam, because you've sinned, you are going to be expelled from the Garden of Eden, and you're going to have to toil and work hard in order to reap a harvest from the earth. It's going to be difficult, and you have to sweat. By the sweat of your brow, will you eat bread? So you'd think, or you can come to the conclusion, that the whole idea of toiling, the whole idea of working hard, is actually a fluke. It's a result of sin. But this is a mistake. Because even at the very beginning, when God put Adam in the Garden of Eden, the Torah tells us that he placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, he placed him into paradise, to work it and to guard it. The word la'avda, to work, comes from the same expression as ibud orot, which means tanning. You know, when you take the hide of an animal, you want to uh, produce leather. There's a whole tanning process that goes into it. This tanning process is very uh, difficult and it demands a lot of hard work. The whole idea of avodah means to work hard, to toil. Now Adam apparently in paradise had to toil. Maybe not as hard as he had to toil later on in life after he sinned. But even in his most pristine and perfect state, he needed to toil. He needed to work. Why? Because only when someone works, only when someone invests their own efforts, do they really own it. Do they really become part of it. 
And that is why God created us in a way, that's why God set up the world in a way, that behaving like a Jew, living a Jewish life, learning Torah and doing mitzvahs properly, doesn't come smoothly, doesn't come automatically. There's always going to be some challenge, whether a big challenge or a smaller challenge, and no challenge is the same. No one is challenged in the same way. Everyone has their unique journey. Everyone has their unique life. Everyone has their unique um, pathway to achieving that which they need to achieve in life. But the one thing that is the same by everyone is that nothing is automatic. Jewish life is not automatic. A purposeful life is not automatic. And that's not a fluke. That's there on purpose so that we should invest. And that's why the first mitzvah that a Jew has ever given was the mitzvah of the bris. Because the bris expresses these two things. Number one, the world was not created perfect. God wants us to perfect it. And number two, by definition, every mitzvah is going to be painful. Not necessarily as painful as a bris, for sure not, right? But there's going to be a certain degree of pain. And uh, the fact of the matter is that when you invest time and effort to do it right, God will help you. God will always, whenever there's an obstacle in our way, the purpose of the obstacle is so that we should work through it. And then all of a sudden the obstacle disappears. And I'll just end off with one more short story of Avraham Avinu of Abraham. Next week's parasha, we're going to learn about the story of the Akedah, when God told Abraham to take his son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice on the altar at, at Harham Maria, Mount Moriah, without getting into the details of the story. But there's one little detail here that on the way to Mount Moriah, the Talmud tells us that Avram was, was presented with many obstacles. Satan did not want to allow Avram to actually carry out the deed to prove his, his, um, his dedication to God in such a deep way. And so one of the things he did was Satan turned into like a river, a rushing river. And Avram continued to go. And up until the water came to his mouth, to his nose, and at that point, he turned to God and he said, God, I'm trying to do your will. What's this river all about? And at that point, God told Satan to stop. And at that moment, the river disappeared. What does that tell us? That this obstacle, from the outset, wasn't really real. It wasn't really there. There was no real river there. But to Abraham, it was real. And because that did not stop him, because he continued to go to Mount Moriah to do what God wants, it disappeared. So here's the secret to dealing with obstacles. There's an obstacle in your path stopping you from doing a mitzvah, making a mitzvah difficult. Keep going. Continue going and you will see that that obstacle will disappear. Right away, it might take a day, it might take a little bit more time, but ultimately it will disappear. Because the purpose of the obstacle is just in order to bring out our passion, our commitment, and in order to give us the opportunity to own that mitzvah that we are about to do. So uh, thank you all for joining us. If you have any questions, please feel free to, uh, to unmute yourself. The class is officially over. If you need to go, feel free to leave the room. I won't get insulted. Um, and it's a pleasure to see you all as always. And I invite you next week, we will have the class on Monday night instead of Tuesday night. So I'll be sending out an email with a reminder. And again, if you want to have the handout, uh, please let me know, and I will use this opportunity to make a plug for the JLI course that we will be starting on November 10th. 
which will be on Tuesdays, will be for six weeks, Secrets of the Bible. If you go onto our website, you can find out all of the information and please register early so that we can have the student textbooks for you. And I'd like to thank all those that already signed up for it um, and those that co-sponsored it. Uh, it's very helpful and we look forward to seeing you then. But until then, Monday night we'll be having the class and then the next week we'll start again on Tuesday. All thank right, I'm done. Any questions? Thank you very much, Rabbi. You're welcome. Hello, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. Yeah. I'm Thank you.